Welcome to another episode of the Speed Change Repeat podcast today with Alon Bloch. Hi, Alon. How are you doing? I'm good. And you, Jonathan? Good to see you. Yes, I'm very well. So we already talked for <laughs> some time. I'm, I'm very happy that we're doing this. It took some time, but uh, you are a very interesting person that has a lot of experience and um, has done some incredible work. So, um, you know, first things first, we always start the same way. And that is obviously that we would like to find out who is it that we're talking to. So kind of first question of today is, you know, where are you coming from and how did you end up where you are today? Uh, and it would be great if you could kind of like tell us in a storytelling way through the different stages of your uh, professional career. Yeah, sure. And feel free to jump in. Um, I, I grew up in Israel. I lived there um, until I, I came to the States to do a graduate degree at Columbia. I uh, did an MBA in the, in the, in 96, 98, and then went to, um, worked at McKinsey for a couple of years, and then uh, went into early stage venture capital. And then at around 2007, 2008, decided to take a concentrated bet on myself and, and joined a, a, a small founding team. The company is called Wix. Um, I joined as co-CEO and stayed there for, for a couple of years. And since then I've been starting and, and building companies. Um, I'm still involved with Wix, I'm on the board. It's a public company. Um, I, I co-founded and was CEO of Vroom, which is also uh, public. Um, and uh, I started K-Health just under five years ago to focus on, on, on health. And we can, we can talk about that. And Kay raised um, you know, several hundred million dollars focused on um, how to change medicine and healthcare starting with starting with the US. Yeah, perfect. So a lot of a lot of things that we can talk about, you know, and we, uh, I, I want to kind of start chronologically. So um, we, we talked about this also prior before before our press record, an entrepreneurial journey um, always, you know, starts somewhere. So you know, you said concentrated bet. So mm-hmm. what does that mean in, in, in your understanding? You know, I, will, I want to talk about those early days, right? So how, how did it start? Remember, most people start or a fair amount of people start their, their first entrepreneurial experience. They want to do it in their 20s, uh, although more and more people are, are older than that. I didn't necessarily know I want to be an entrepreneur. Um, I, I thought I'd want to be a scientist. I was interested in genetics and evolution. That was my undergraduate. Um, realized I'm looking to do more stuff that is um, kind of in business and in fast-paced changes. Um, uh, I, I remember um, many people, and you know that are my age, read Mary Meeker's um, Internet Report. I think came out in '96, which was a seminal report for me around the opportunity here. And from then on, I was very clear, I want to work in technology. It just felt like there's just more changes and it's going to lead to a lot of big things, which I didn't fully understand. Um, and um, decided to join an early stage uh, venture firm called JVP. Um, I did that in 2000 at the height of the dot-com days, not having enough context on the business cycle. Uh, we had a fund of $400 million. Over the next few years, I became a partner and I was investing in early stage companies and got more and more interested in this kind of early stage um, 
company building, product market fit, thinking about the company, thinking about the product and, and what we wanted to do. I saw some great entrepreneurs. I saw what happened to companies over time. Some of the companies I backed and my partners backed, you know, went public and, or got sold. Some of them went nowhere. Some of them had big promise. And so there was all these different things in my head, but since I didn't code kind of, I didn't have a strong coding background or I wasn't an engineer, I had doubts whether I'm, you know, right for to be in the technology space. And then in, um, in 2007, the opportunity arised for me to um, join um, uh, the founders of Wix. Um, company was very young. It raised one million in seed round, give or take, and in 2006. And I, I joined them. We had a very young product. It actually wasn't quite working yet. It also, when it worked, it was on Flash, which then Steve Jobs wanted to kill because he wanted to make changes. Um, so there was a platform shift a few years later to HTML5. Um, but I really, really liked the founder's general approach that people should be able to create their own content online, just like you write in Word or PowerPoint or Excel. Uh, today it's obvious, but it wasn't that obvious in 2006, 2007. Um, the funding market was much tighter. Um, but Bessemer and Mangrove uh, were willing to back us. Um, and we survived the, um, you know, the Lehman Brothers big financial crisis collapse in 2008, barely. Um, but that actually gave a big push to, to what we're doing. And the same forces at work still exist today, you know. So 13 years after launching, you know, Wix is still executing on this core vision of enabling people to express themselves online, to create content online, uh, to build websites, but also to build businesses online whether it's for businesses or for their hobbies or, you know, all these different things. And I think the world's moving more and more, you know, you know, in, in that, in that way. Um, and so, yeah, so that's kind of how I got my, you know, my feet wet in the world of startups, which is very different from between investing in it or advising in it or reading about it and doing it. Um, you know, so, but that's what made me feel like I really, really want to do this kind of forever. And I don't want to go back into venture capital, even though venture capital is a lot of fun and you get to invest. And more importantly, you get to see really, really smart people and you get to, uh, you know, do, you know, do different things. Um, and over time, I just um, raised a lot of capital, uh, build, um, you know, built, you know, several companies and um, got to see um, how to execute, how to tie your thinking into execution, how to bring in kind of the, the core partner team into place, the founders, the executives, the key engineers, um, and then how to build, a, you know, what does it actually mean to build a company over time? So that's refined. The type of things I tended to do, again, I didn't have some master plan, um, the type of things I tended to do um, became a little bit different, but they all kind of tie together around um, there is an industry. The industry has a way of doing things that's a little bit calcified. Uh, the legacy player are 
players are typically tend to be um, extracting too much profit and not making a big enough uh, value to people. And I was more worried about value. And it's not about technology, it's about societal change. Societal change encourages people to do things differently. But technology often enables that, right? So you have a cell phone in your pocket. People call it a smartphone, but it's a pretty dumb name for a smart device, right? This is a uh, the whole world's information, a supercomputer sitting in your pocket. And that changes the way people want to do everything. It's not about, oh, I can do it online instead of going into a store or a bank, but I can also do things very, very differently. I can take control. And so if Wix is around taking control of your small business and, and, and being very proactive, how you present yourself, how you market yourself, how you manage your customers and suppliers, um, you know, uh, Vroom is around taking control of around an experience that I completely disliked, which is going to a used car salesman and trying to buy a car or sell a car. I always hated that experience for multiple reasons. And I, I think that's why the term used car salesman is, is considered, you know, you know, such a, you know, such a derogatory term. I think globally, every country I've lived in or visited, it's always, you know, the same term. Um, but in general, um, I wanted to help people uh, make decisions and execute on big decisions, whether it's a small business or buying major assets. Um, and then finally rolled up into, into K, which we can talk about, but K was a very, very big bet from my perspective around what can be done and why things should be done differently and, and, and how to go about thinking about your health, uh, you know, differently. Yeah. I, I looked into K-Health and I also listened to a podcast that you've done previous and just like in the, in the past, past been diving a lot deeper into, into the entire vertical and there's a lot of things happening. And so one of the things I, I, I remember you saying on another show was medicine, health, is super difficult, right? It's super complex. And um, so if healthcare is super, and, and let's say medicine in itself is super complex, right? How did you then basically make the decision where to start? Because there's so many levels at where you could basically, you know, just pinpoint and say like, yeah, you know, there we can fix something because it's just, it's not good. Um. I started with an approach, not with a segment. And I think it's very important to use uh, those words because I didn't know exactly what we're doing. I had no business model in mind. My investors didn't see any business model in mind for me in 2016. We had a notion, we had an idea of what should be done and the key steps to get there. I also learned a lot along the way and changed my mind about a whole host of things or uh, refined you know, what we're doing. But medicine is complicated, maybe even really complicated because it deals with people and, and the complexities of providing care to people. Healthcare is complicated for a whole host of regulatory reasons and it changes country by country. Um, but every industry is complicated. What our approach was, you could teach a machine the language of medicine. That was our approach. It wasn't, this is what we're going to build or we're going to enable people to see doctors online or anything. 
I, we started very much from a data science and information perspective. And our bet was if we can get our hands on a big enough, rich enough data set that was genuinely um, representative of what happens to people over time, then um, that would be um, uh, a really, really interesting way to allow people to understand their health. But look, if, if you live, there, there is a magical age when you're maybe in your 20s that you're young and healthy and you're like, I'm gonna always be young and healthy. Why do people go to doctors, right? But you live your life, you see, um, uh, you see your parents' needs and other people's needs for doctors and clinics and procedures and hospitals. Uh, you see people age, you see yourself age, um, and, you, and you see the need to um, think about all these different things. And for me, I was just puzzled around how doctors made decisions, especially looking at my family, my own experience, my co-founders' co-experiences around medicine and around diagnosis and treatment. And our approach was, gee, if we can, we want to create this magical second opinion. We want to create this information that can get to know you medically around a certain specific problem you have and try and resolve that uh, for you before you go to a doctor, at the doctor, or after the doctor. And that was the general approach that we took. So we ended up licensing a large data set from an HMO, an integrated uh, healthcare provider that's also an insurer called Maccabi in Israel. Maccabi has over 2 million patients. Maccabi has their own doctors and captive drugstore and la captive lab and, and, and hospitals all in its own EMR. And we got to see patients over 20 years. And I will skip all the technology stages, but we were able to license that data set and build a medical ontology, a medical language that understands all these different things. Because when you go to a doctor, the doctor doesn't use layman terms, they use quite specific terms that they studied in medicine. Now, medicine is certainly a profession that you need to have deep knowledge. You can't do two weeks, two week course. We can't just say, okay, we're gonna be our family doctor. Let's do a one month course and uh, We'll take care of everything. We'll prescribe, we'll, we'll decide, right? Now, you, you tell me you've got a young baby, so you are effectively responsible from a medical perspective for your young baby, right? If your baby's crying, if there is a fever, you, you, you start making decisions. As your child grows, you're gonna communicate with your, with, with your child. Fundamentally, you're making a medical decision whether to take your child to a, a doctor. So if a child's head hurts, where does it hurt? How long does it hurt? You know, if, if you know, you came back from some exotic trip, you know, if they banged their head, you know, if they haven't eaten, you know, if they're stressed about something, you know, all these different things, but it doesn't make you a doctor. You're trying to make this decision, you know, do you just need to relax or do I need to take you to a doctor? Um, but you're thinking intuitively around stuff that's part of the medical profession. Where does it hurt? How long, et cetera. In medicine, if somebody, if a 40-year-old male goes to a doctor and says, my head hurts, the doctor is having quite a specific conversation with them around this differential diagnosis. The doctor is trying to, uh, in the first diagnostic visit, trying to figure out what you have and tries to prove out what you have, right? So your head hurts, where specifically? Is it radiating? Is it pulsating? Is it on the right side? Is it on the left side? Is it made better by 
exercise is made worse by exercise? Are you stressed? Have you changed medication? Have you stopped taking, have you stopped drinking coffee? You know, all these different, have you changed something about your life habits? Uh, have you come back from a, you know, from a, from a tropical jungle? It could be all these different things. Doctors don't necessarily have all the answers or for certain they don't have all the answers, but that's why a doctor, a physician is so important in that step, right? Um, and that's why Western medicine tries to focus on taking a general chief complaint, my head hurts. And the person is also uh, say vomiting, you know, and, and has certain frequency and a certain behavior associated with that in their medical history and trying to understand diagnosis and treatment. So your gender and age matter a lot, uh, your medical history and your very, very specific symptoms. Um, and how that's tied to diagnosis and treatment matters a lot. You know, that is really, really important. Um, and, and that's what a, a great physician will try and do in a very short period of time, in a matter of minutes, probably without lab or without results, need to decide, okay, do I need to send you to the ER? Unlikely, but sometimes yes. Do I need to send you to do a test, a procedure? Do I need to rule out some condition? Maybe it's a tick-borne disease. In, you know, in America, in the Northeast, there's a lot of Lyme disease. Uh, maybe you, you, you got a tick bite that you, we can't find that, you know, has led to this fever. Maybe now you've got COVID or flu. You know, maybe you're stressed. Maybe you've got a tension headache. Maybe you've got sinusitis. And, and doctors learn all these different aspects, you know, in a very, very detailed manner um, and also a very clinical matter. And then if you're seeing a very experienced doctor, doctor knows how to diagnose and, tr and treat that or refer you to somebody else, right? Um, you have two prob three problems there. First problem is, um, how do you know your doctor is great? You know, how do you know they know how to make good decisions? No doctor is great in everything, right? It's just too much information. So who do you need to go and see? Are they gonna pay attention to me? Are, are they gonna have biases? Do they have a busy day? Uh, all these human factors for a very important profession. You know, you want your doctor to be the best in the world, but you don't know. And on average, you're going to the average doctor. Um, you know the saying, the worst person at medical school still became a, a physician, right? Who, who do they get to, uh, who do they get to see, right? Um, and um, the, the other aspect is these doctors work with a much more limited amount of data than what you or I would believe or, or the general population believe. So it's much more observational science and science. There's no data in the fingertips around you. There's no personalized information. I'm not even talking about genetics which is by and large not used in primary care. It's used in oncology, it's used in prenatal, it's used in other specific situations, but it's still not integrated into primary care. But I'm talking about a lot of stuff that's relevant to you, your specific medical history, the stuff that may or may not matter to a headache, you know, all these different things. Um, so when somebody goes to a doctor, complains about a headache, the headache is pulsating on the right side. They're also vomiting, but they don't have a fever and the doctor diagnoses them with X or Y, let's assume sinusitis. I'm just making up an example. I'm not a, I'm not a doctor. Um, and you get a medication and you have a side effect and you're feeling better, you're feeling worse. 
there is a whole data link around in, in the Western world around um, billing because somebody needs to pay somebody else for something. Um, and, and the medication, let's say, needs to go to a pharmacy and the pharmacy needs to know to give you a medication X, a prescription. Um, but there's no, um, so there is workflow, there's billing, but there's no learning from data. And that's really, really important. There is learning in medicine from data, especially in academic research hospitals. I don't know how it works exactly in Europe, but I'm assuming there is similar hospitals that have center of excellence around cardiology, oncology, um, but they tend to be quite for quite specific things. And usually in a way that technology does not consider scalable. It's not, it's not very sophisticated around the way it learns from data. It's difficult to collect data. Um, and so again, it could be a labor of love, it could be a pharmaceutical company or a biotech company or some medical researchers focus on stuff. But, but again, your average doctor that you go to see is not a researcher, that's not their job. Their job is to try and diagnose and treat you and try and figure out what to do. And that's a very, very tricky stage. Um, it's not a movie with ER and hospitals and life-saving, it's mundane stuff. People have, uh, sore throats and they have rashes and they have stomach aches and they had headaches and they're afraid of COVID, they're afraid of cancer, they're afraid of heart. Uh, people um, have complicated health conditions such as diabetes or hypertension that could be risky. Um, they could be taking multiple medications. They could be depressed or have anxiety, all these different things. People are complicated, as you know. And so how do you learn from all these different settings and, and how do you build uh, models that can help people understand their health in a way that's not stupid, in a way that doesn't look like, let me go to Google and just type in some symptoms. Because that, I assure you, is a horrible, horrible way to take care of your health. And so smart people say, yeah, but I know how to find the research to read. Yeah, I don't believe them. I think it's really, really tough. Unless you're a world expert in a certain area and have spent your life in a certain area, it's going to be very tough for you to diagnose and treat yourself based on information from the internet. And 99.9% .9 of the information is wrong and scary. Telling a 30-year-old woman that her stomach ache is either food poisoning, pregnancy, or cancer is entirely unhelpful. Um, and trying to tell that after two questions is also unhelpful. Um, and it's irrelevant and it's, it's zero. And so um, how do you build an information layer that can talk to you around your health? You know, so you asked me, you know, what makes me, um, well, how do we start? Well, we started with this approach and then we started with acute care, your first diagnostic visit. You know what? It's interesting, actually. Um, one fact that you said is, so you started off by getting this huge amount of data because ultimately what you just said is that you need a knowledge layer, right? From which you then basically can, uh, which ultimately is your baseline. Right. Mm -hmm. And the, the problem, however, is, I mean, we do have a lot of knowledge, right, but it's it's locked, it's locked away and we ha do have a lot of expert knowledge. Right. And so what you just said, like with Maccabi, for example, this is actually very interesting because all over the world, either it be in Europe or it be in the States or uh, whatever. Right. We do have these knowledge centers and where we have these large amounts of data, these these large longitudinal studies for all sorts of cases. Right. They're all locked. Right. That's why we still have independent research at different institutions or university. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know how great they are. Some are great. Some are not. I think it's very tough to, to collect outpatient information, which is just think of the term 
outpatients. Like you need to be inpatient for me to, to, to see. Outpatient is to collect information, how people eat, how they feel. What, what, what are their digest, how much of the exercise, how well to sleep and tie that into, into what you're doing. I mean, that is a holy grail, but look at your Fitbit or Apple watch. And when you have a headache, please ask, uh, please ask your Apple watch or Fitbit what to do about your headache. But isn't that, isn't that then, uh, as you said, holy grail. So, I mean, I talked about this with, with a bunch of people that that's also ultimately what you see in the startup world is that you have single angle approaches, right? So you need a bunch of information, but the thing is you have single challenges that are solved by startups and then startups trying to build up small data sets for a specific problem, etc. However, as you said, right, I need information on my microbiome. I need information on my uh, physical uh, data. I, I need all, all, all this stuff. But the thing is, it, isn't it like, as you said, holy grail, impossible to, to acquire that all together on scale? There's a few questions here wrapped into one. First of all, I think medicine is general. So I don't think you need to go to Dr. X for, for prescription X and Dr. Y for prescription Y. You need to have a single electronic medical record, a single data platform that understands all these different things. And you know we don't have time to cover all healthcare side, but a lot of the problem is people go to two different set, uh, experts. They go to internal medicine and they go to cardiology and they get prescriptions that could potentially clash with each other. That happens all day long in America. Uh, I think part of the problem is, is enabling a single place for that. There is a reason why doctors have a general medical understanding across all these different things, even if they're not an expert in everything. So I'm a big believer not in myopically solving narrow problems. Here's your birth control pill. I'm just going to handle your birth control, but I'm not going to handle anything else. So I do believe in primary care. I think, I think in Europe it's called a family doctor, the ability to have a, a full-blown view. And, and the other thing is there's a difference between saying biomogenetics and between tying it in together. Doctors, of course, understand that genetics is very important, but where is genetics used in medicine, in primary care, in chronic care, in acute care? Where is it used in preventative care? It's usually used in much later stages, always used prenatal when a mother is pregnant. Um, there is a lot more knowledge about genetics than what is used. And there's a lot of stuff we still don't know about genetics. 20 years after the first full genome sequencing, we don't know everything yeah. for various reasons. You know, I think we understand 10% of, uh, of the functionality of 10% of, of, of our genes overall, which is a lot, but also it's not 100%. Um, but even then, again, the problem is not to say, okay, I want to solve the connection between biome and, and people's health. The question is, is the context. Because um, your biome might be related to your mood. It might be influencing your mood. It might be influenced by your mood, like depression, anxiety, stress. Um, it might be tied to your general genetics. It might be tied to some medical history, some viral or bacterial setting that you had. It might be tied to your immune system. Now you're talking about really, really complex science stuff that cannot be resolved in one year with all the best intentions and with all the data in the world. So that's one big problem. The second problem is correlation and causality, which I'm, I'm sure, sure you understand. But just because your biome is X and you're feeling Y doesn't mean that one influenced the other, right? 
Um, there's a lot of storks in Sweden every summer, and there's a lot of babies born in Sweden every summer. But I think we all know that storks don't deliver babies, not even in Sweden, as much as fantastic as that would be, right? Um, and so but when you're building something quite narrow and you want to prove value, you, you want to say, okay, and again, I'm, I'm not using biome or any other part of, of what we're doing, lifestyle, um, but, you know, proving, proving uh, correlation is one thing, proving causality is the other thing. And the other thing is false positive. Let's assume your, your pulse is 85 right now for the last two hours. And you have, a, you know, a Fitbit or Apple Watch, another wearable that tells you your heart rate accurately. Okay, what does that mean? Please ask a cardiologist, what does that mean that your pulse is, is 80? And let's assume um, your pulse is usually 70. What does that mean? There's no clinical protocol for that. Medicine, the, the medical profession hasn't yet come into fully understanding what does that mean to stream medicine, right? We at K haven't solved streaming, streaming medicine either. But if you've got a smart wearable on you and it knows how you slept, and your heart rate and how you exercise and other things. And let's say it does a really, really good job in that. And maybe you can also figure out a way to collect people's food. All these things that matter a lot to your health, right? But how does that tie into what you're feeling right now? Who knows? So your heart rate's 85 right now. Did you drink coffee? Are you anxious? Did you get a piece of news? Did you run up a flight of stairs? Do you have, uh, are you sick? Do you have COVID? You know, there's all these different things. This is where it's really tough. So now what happens? Do you ping your cardiologist? Let's assume you have access to your cardiologist. Do you ping your cardiologist every time your heart rate is, is, is above, above uh, resting pace for half an hour? Medicine is not geared to that. So who's gonna look at all this information and what is it gonna mean? So false, and, th and then you can jump into false positive conclusions. Remember, we can wake up in the morning and go to a lab and check up our, our, our vitals every day, right? There is a cost to that, but it's not, it's, there's no biological cost to that, yet we don't do it. Why don't we do our lab every day? Why don't we take our blood pressure every day? Why don't we look at it in, in very specific settings? So I think there are companies doing really interesting stuff, especially around continuous glucose monitors that I think is gonna be really interesting. Um, but just, just because you can take your pulse, that, that doesn't mean that in the short term, we can be smart around your health. In the long term, of course we will. If we have enough information about you and other people, but we need a full picture or a big enough picture. I don't think there's ever a full picture, but there is a big enough picture we need to understand. And that's what makes us so fascinating because you need to pick the problems you're trying to resolve. And if you're gonna try and do everything, you're gonna boil the ocean very quickly, which is not gonna work. Yeah, you know what? There's so many things that we could continue to talk about. The thing is we have a hard stop and I'm going to leave it at that, you know, because the thing is, we should talk in the future because there's, again, there's uh, so many things that we could cover. But, um, you know, it was great to have you here, Alon, to have this first insight. So, you know, uh, I'm going to I'm going to take uh, take take you up on, you know, in the future doing a, a part two of this because there's many more things that we can talk about. Awesome. No, I, I appreciate it. And, you know, uh, these kind of questions really um... Uh, make me think about all these things that I don't get to think about every day. So uh, it's it's always it's always really good and and engaging. But um, 
I think the general approach for people in health, and I don't use the term digital health because Spotify is not my digital music and Netflix is not my digital video. Um, so we're in the business of health, medicine. Um, the important thing to understand is this is gonna take, this is gonna take, you need to think decades, 10, 20 years, not one, two years. And you need to think very carefully about your partners and business models, which we can talk about next time, but it's not trivial because healthcare, at least in America, doesn't work according to normal economic practices, it works differently. Mm. Maybe similar to education, it works very, very differently. Uh, it's a big social utility, there's big responsibility, there's a lot of regulation, but also the economic structure works differently. And US and, 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 and key European countries are also very different. Um, and so, I'm saying this because it's not enough to solve a product or value problem to people, which is potentially a lifespan impact because you're better in understanding people's health and predicting and helping them to figure out how to solve an acute problem or avoid a chronic problem. But you also now need to figure out how to stay in business and survive and have enough cash to build out your business and who's paying who for what, which is not intuitive. If you're selling a widget online in e-commerce, and whether it's a differentiated widget or you've got a way to sell the widget um, and you can build it up, you need to be have a product market fit and pricing and a funnel and all these different things. But you don't need to worry about a regulatory selling that unless you're selling something illegal. And you don't need to worry, um, your, your consumer is gonna pay here. Here, who pays? The government pays, in America, employers pay, or do people pay out of pocket? That's not that obvious. Um, and you can't just say, okay, I'm gonna, I wanna sell medicine, I'm gonna sell medicine. Of course, it would be stupid to think about that from a healthcare perspective. So, you know, that makes it not, not only you need to figure out what you can do that matters in a 10X more than other people, but now you need to tie it to a complex business rule. And I can tell you for, if you're a technologist coming into the industry, it's not always intuitive to you how this all makes sense. There's rules, but you don't understand why they're in place and why people are using them. And if you work in the industry, you don't even realize that other industries work completely differently because you're in such a big industry. Um, you might have the best, best um, data-driven solution in the world and you'll go and knock on your local hospital or some big hospital and say, I have this best solution since sliced bread, please work with me. And they might not understand what you're talking about. Not because they're bad people and not smart. It just doesn't tie into what they're doing. Similar to my example, you, you go to a cardiologist and say, hey, I want to stream my, my Apple Watch or Fitbit information to you. They don't know what to do with that. They know extreme cases, but they know how to tie them together. That's why it's so fascinating because you can't solve all the obvious problems at one. We know it's connected, but how exactly to connect it and how to use it is not, is not that obvious. That's absolutely, you know, so there's, there's multiple things to that. So there's one is definitely the, you know, the entire regulatory type of thing, the complexity of the field itself. And then, but also, as you said, right, if you start a business, if you're, if you're, if you're, let's say, uh, you know, one of the things that you also need to think about is like, obviously, profitability, right? How do you, how do you run that at, uh, actually? And that, that's, as you said, something that we, that we can definitely talk about in the future. But for now, Alon, uh, thank you a lot for being on the show. You know, it was, it was really great having you here. Good to see you and enjoy your weekend, Jonathan, to be continued. Thank you.